Welcome to the Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. This summer, we're walking through the book of Romans, taking a master class from the rich and powerful book of the New Testament. Romans is one of the greatest books of the Bible. It is the essence of the gospel and provides the rich doctrine of our faith. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and God has used it to change the hearts of men and ultimately the world. In Romans, we see the impact of our sin, which reveals our deep need for God, and then the importance of living out our faith in Jesus today. Whether a lifelong student of the Bible to a first-time believer, this is a masterclass for everyone. Let's listen in. Good morning. Welcome to week four. The reason I know that it's week four is because we're in Romans chapter four, and for the next 16 weeks, we're just going chapter by chapter by chapter. Week four of this master class series. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter four, because we're going to be going through the whole thing together today. I tried to scan the crowd this morning when Joel was up here giving a welcome and reminding us that it was Mother's Day, just to see if any of you were like, oh no, I forgot, um, because it does happen from time to time, we do want to say, um, again, a a happy Mother's Day um, to all of us in the room, regardless of what way we find ourselves in today. As we go through this whole book of Romans, I think the chapter that I'm the most excited about, I haven't hidden this from anybody, is chapter 16. Because at the close of what's been regarded as the most concise theological work in all of the New Testament, we culminate it with a who's who list of names at the conclusion of the book, with Paul's just giving shout out after shout out after shout out to significant people in the life of the church. You know that he begins by commending his sister Phoebe, who was the courier of this letter to all of the churches in Rome, and very likely the voice that they heard standing up in front of a crowd full of people reading it out loud. And then he gives a laundry list of men and women, slaves and free, like wealthy people and poor people, Jewish people and Greek people, talking about the establishment of the local church and how significant it was that it was built on the backs of these colleagues of his. I can't wait to get to that who's who. How many of you, just by a show of hands, you don't want to say because you're too humble, were voted something in high school, like, like prettiest, anybody, anybody out there, like, or just, or best looking, maybe that's what they call it these days, um, most likely to succeed, who out there is just going to be like, well, you know, come on, me, like, most likely to succeed, um, wittiest was one that we had in my, most talented, or maybe even friendliest, anybody friendliest out there, that might be something that you're a little bit more apt to raise your hand on and say, oh yeah, you know, I, I was, uh, I was, you know, this in high school, some of you peaked a little early, and I get it, but like, what was the thing that you were known for, and what was the thing that made you feel worth it among this crowd of 
anywhere from, I don't know, 200 to thousands of kids that made you feel significant, the thing that made you stand out, or the thing that made, or the thing that you wish that you stood most athletic, that was one, oh, I wished I could have gotten that one, but there was no way, and I learned at a very early age that that was not going to be my lot in life. At the church that I grew up in, we had mom superlatives on Mother's Day. I don't know if you guys did that or were part of a church that did that. Like the pastor would get up and he would find like the, the youngest mother in the room, the one who had like just become a mom the most recently, and some lady who had just had her baby like, I don't know, an hour and a half before showed up at church because she wanted to make sure that she was the one that won that award that day, or maybe the mother with the most children. Like, I don't know who's out there thinking that that's, like, you had six kids just so that one day a year somebody could make you stand up on the stage and say, this is the mother in the room with the most children. I don't think that's a fair trade-off, because kids are hard and expensive. There was this idea of something that, that significance or worth And we do this as a culture. We do this as a society. We give Oscars and Tonys and NFL rings. Like there's this this idea that worth is somehow attached to accomplishment, that worth is somehow attached to status, that worth is somehow attached to finance, that worth is somehow attached to personality even. Like we attach worth to a lot of things, and we'll see in Romans chapter 4 that Paul is addressing very specifically a portion of the people in the life of that young church who still wanted to attach their worth to the idea of family. We do that. Mother's Day, Father's Day, Grandparents' Day. We attach a, a, a picture of worth to something that we attach worth to a lot of things that we shouldn't, and maybe that's one too. There's a running theme in the spirit of Taylor Swift and Janet Jackson and all these other people making Nashville one of their tour stops. There's a couple of tour stops that I think we have to make throughout this study on the book of Romans. And here's one doesn't necessarily apply to chapter 4 any more than it applies to chapter 5, 6, 7. It doesn't necessarily apply to the book of Romans any more than it applies to the book of Judges or the book of Revelation. There's a running theme that as you read scripture, you will find that there's a difference between, and it's an important difference, it's a nuanced difference, and you may not even recognize the subtle difference. There is a difference between what does this verse mean to me and what does this verse mean? And you're like, well, that just sounds the same. And you've encountered both of those questions. You've encountered the first one probably in some kind of small group setting, probably in some kind of Bible study setting. Like you've been around a circle of a group of people who have opened up the Bible together and they're following along, sometimes very reluctantly, in a little book that outlines for them leader questions. And one of the questions says, well, hey, does anybody want to share? It's, it's, a, it's a share time kind of situation. Does anybody want to share what this verse means to them? And the nuanced difference, the the subtlety that's there tells us that we get to be the interpreters of what this word says and means. The difference between what does this verse mean to me? I could come up with any manner of things that I want this verse to mean to me. The difference between what a verse means to me and what a verse actually means is that the burden of communication always sits at the sender. It's Paul's job. It's God Almighty's job to explain to us through the power of the Holy Spirit what these words actually mean. And so we're going to sit down and and we're going to sit back in what's now no longer a postmodern world but a a metamodern world where everybody's concerned with the individual nature of 
individual supremacy. Everybody's in charge and everybody gets to decide everything. There is a distinction between you and I approaching this word of God saying, huh, what does this word mean to me as opposed to what does this word actually mean? And when you focus on what the word actually means, it's going to lead you to an especially moment. It's an especially moment when we need to ask, what does it all mean about me? Because sometimes the word says really positive, encouraging, you're most likely to succeed things about you. Sometimes the word gives you a vote of encouragement and a vote of confidence and tells you that you're pretty and witty and fun. But sometimes what the word says about you and the conclusion that the word leads you to draw is something that's maybe not so positive. If we go back to Romans chapter 1, Paul is addressing the sins of the entire pagan world, people that have no Old Testament, people that are not keen on what's happening in the New Testament, people who did not know Yahweh, they did not know Israel's God. He talked about the sins of the pagan world, and then he moved really quickly into chapter 2 to the judgmental Jew. And if a person can't get caught up by the pagan sins outlined in Romans chapter 1 or the judgmental sins outlined in Romans chapter 2. He summed it all up really big by Romans chapter 3. In fact, in Romans 1 through 3, Paul is building a really solid case. Everyone sins. It says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. This was last week's memory verse. If you're tracking along with master class and memorizing a new verse every week, we're turning our attention to what's known as the Roman road of salvation. And Romans 3.23 finds itself at the beginning of that because before any of us can acknowledge salvation, we have to first be reminded what the word says, that we are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And let's be really careful here because it's God who gets to define sin. He's the one who wrote the letter. He's the one who sends the message, and so he sets the terms. It's not part of today's message, but it could be part of every single message, and it probably needs like a little tiny minute that at the conclusion of one of the most memorized verses in all of Scripture, John three sixteen, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. He summed that up with John three seventeen. Not many people memorize this one. It says that the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. There's a continuum of sin and this idea of fear that we all talk about as believers in Jesus Christ. If you're sitting here today and you have somehow surrendered your life to believing in Jesus Christ, you call yourself a Christ follower, you believe that these words, whatever the interpretation may be, are actually true, and you're attempting, at least in some manner, to live your life according to what they say. There's this continuum of fear that we engage as believers that if we don't come out and aggressively condemn sin, like if we don't come out and get loud about it, like angry with people's faces and angry with our Twitters and all the other things, like if we don't come out aggressive against sin, condemning all the evils of the entire world, not just within the church, but people outside the church who don't believe what we believe inside. If we don't come out condemning sin, then we're actually condoning it. And we have this fear of condoning sin, and we don't want to be on that side of the equation, so we'll just come out more aggressively than we ever would about anything else and condemn it so the world will know where it is that we stand. And the pendulum swings the other way too. Because sometimes out of fear of looking so condemning and so angry and so aggressive, like we don't want to be associated with that. 
and we see it and we read about it and we're like, that just feels like, I don't know, the opposite of Jesus. So for fear of looking that aggressive or being lumped into the category of mean, judgmental, condemning Christians, we'll just rewrite scripture a little bit and accept and not only accept but excuse, not only excuse but condone, and then somehow we find ourselves celebrating the sin that's in the world and in the church because we were afraid of looking like a jerk. Rosaria Butterfield says, woe to us when we find ourselves more merciful than God. Somehow or another, we, we have to know that there's a, there's a third way, there's a middle way where we don't have to be the people that are out there celebrating and condoning the things that the Bible is clearly against. But that doesn't automatically put us into the tribe of people who are just mean. Romans chapter 4 begins to pave part of that way for us. So you have your Bibles and you open them up. We've, we've learned that everyone sins through Romans chapter 1 through 3. And Paul is going to continue to undermine every single argument to the contrary of people being sinful. Everybody. Same level playing field of sin in life. And any argument that you could bring against it, Paul is going to continue to undermine what that is. It says in Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, oh, we're going to kick it back to Genesis and bring Abraham into the mix. It's about ancestry. It's about family. People find a lot of worth in family. They find a lot of worth in their position in the family. It says, what? Then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. So how would Abraham feel about you calling all of us same level playing field sinners? He says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. If Abraham was just somehow better than all of us, then he certainly had a reason to boast. He got the senior superlative for being the first to ever be faithful. That's what we'll give to him, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you want to put a box or a circle or an underline on scripture, if you're following along with us digitally and somehow, I don't know how you would designate that word and separate apart on a phone, but if you're, if you're writing down in an analog version of the Bible, I encourage you to underline, circle, score, highlight, somehow or another that word credited. We're actually going to come back to it a little bit later in the service because a lot of Bible translations give it the word reckon, and reckon to me is one that I had to look up because I just associated that with you might be a redneck if. Like, reckon just seems like one of those words that only, it's an actual word, and it has like, like weight and meaning. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. It says, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul is consulting his credible source. He's going back to the Old Testament, and not just the Old Testament, the beginning of the Old Testament. He's going back to the start of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He's kicking it with Genesis, and he's, he's, he's writing this down. He's having this relayed to an audience of people who had to come to the table saying, this Old Testament scripture speaks. It matters. This is our, our column of belief. Paul's going to Genesis chapter 15, and he's saying, and it was credited to him as as righteousness. And then he says in verse 4, now to the one who works, like the hard workers in the room, anybody get hardest worker as a superlative? Wages are not credited, reckoned as a gift, but as an obligation. How many of you by a show of hands would be real mad if your paycheck didn't go through after two weeks of really hard labor? 
You see, if I work for it, then I can boast about it, and if I boast about it, I get a reward for it. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited, reckoned to them as righteousness. And then he, kicked, he brings David into the mix. He fast-forwards through Israel's history and, and leaves the forefather of it behind and goes right to the kingdom and their greatest king and said, David says the same thing. He's quoting the book of Psalms when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits, reckons righteousness apart from, apart from works. He says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. He's bringing words that they had already said they believed in right to the forefront of their minds. We've said that everybody is a sinner, and now we're calling people blessed whose sins are not taken into account. Conversations for us today, conversations for them back then about eternity and security, like what literally brings a person into the presence of God and what allows them to be named his child, conversations about eternity and about security are really about worth, are really about what matters. It says in verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And you're like, my goodness, Nick Allen, we're only in chapter 4, and we continue week after week after week, day after day after day. In all of my Bible readings, we're having to go back to this word over and over and over again, circumcision. I have already said it in this series far more than I'm comfortable with, and you've heard it in this series far more than you are comfortable with. I had the pleasure of teaching at the Nolansville campus last week. That's why y'all missed me for the light show that we had here at the Nashville campus. If you didn't laugh at that, it's because you skipped last week. That's okay. So I was teaching at the Nolansville campus, and I had this family that I didn't know. I don't know everybody that's there come up to me at the conclusion of the service, and they were being very kind and very encouraging about the word um, that was brought that Sunday. And then the mom says, and we also just want to thank you because in the middle of that message, our 14-year-old daughter leaned over and said, mom, what's circumcision? And the dad goes, so it looks like a really fun conversation over lunch. And if you're somebody in here that doesn't know and you need to have a conversation over lunch, um, can I get a volunteer who would be willing to answer that question for you? Anybody in the room? Like there was a picture of worth, of this covenant idea of, of circumcision, what set Israel apart. And so Paul's asking the question, is the blessedness, is the blessing, it's the word makarios, and it means a condition in which you are deeply secure and content and happy with God. You can be makarios, blessed, even in the most miserable of circumstances. How do we know this? Because Jesus preached message after message, his longest recorded discourse called the Sermon on the Mount, he starts with this idea of blessing over and over and over again. And if you read back through that laundry list, not many of those situations are really good. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, that's a hard one. Blessed are those who are poor. In sp well, that's not, doesn't sound so great. How about this one? Like, like, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account, that you should rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. John Piper writes this. So, blessed are you doesn't mean untroubled are you. It doesn't mean healthy are you. 
Blessed are you does not mean admired are you, prosperous are you. It means that between you and God, everything's fine. All is well. You're deeply secure, profoundly confident, content, and happy in God, even if you are in this life weeping over the pain of a struck body, a perplexed mind, or a heartbreaking relationship, or that empty feeling for the thing that you've prayed for, the thing that you longed for not happening, or the thing that you hoped wouldn't did. This picture of being blessed it means that we're happy in God regardless of what is going on in this life. And Paul's applying it to who it goes for. Who can be secure in the blessings of God? Is it only for the covenant Torah abiding Jew? Or does it apply to anybody else? He says, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited, reckoned to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? And then he's like, okay, I'll just go ahead and give you the answer because I don't need you wasting your time looking it up. It was not after but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith when he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, I told her that we were going to say this word a whole lot, but also who follow the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 14, for if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. We're talking about a, a promise that's worth it, because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where's your worth? Like, that'd be a question that I'd want you to answer before you leave today, certainly before you leave this life. Where's your worth? There are people, and not just women, we can talk about that all day, we can talk, there are people who, who live every day without something that they've asked God for. Or, or who live with something every day that they ask God to take them away from. Their worth is not in what they lack. Their worth is not in the difficulty that they have. I think the very obvious connection to a day like Mother's Day, I'll just go ahead and preemptively say Father's Day, Grant, any other day where we recognize someone in our life that, and I'll know there are people today that are remembering moms, and the first time it's without mom. I, I get that. Some people walk into the room and they're like, well, it sounds great, but my relationship with my mom is difficult because she's hard or because I've been really hard. Or as a mom with kids or not kids, like there's this picture of what you thought that love and support and a relationship was going to look like and it doesn't look like the love and the support and the relationship and the way that you thought that it was going to look like. There, 
I always find it really comforting to say that the original petitioners of Mother's Day, the people that wanted to craft for the United States Mother's Day, were really a group of moms who were banding together to make sure that war conditions were safe for their kids. Mother's Day started not as a day for, ooh, pamper me, but as a day for, hey, ladies, let's get together because we got to do something. Our kids on both sides of this really wretched civil war are struggling, and so what we're going to do is peacefully, even though our sons may be fighting on different sides, we're going to peacefully come together and make sure that all of our boys are safe and all of our boys are loved. It wasn't moms saying, look at me. It was moms saying, hey, look what we can do together. In fact, if you fast forward to when Mother's Day finally became this big observance in our country, the people who had originally petitioned for it to happen came back and said, oh no, we didn't want this. We didn't want some commercialized holiday that, yeah, we wanted something that was passionately about women banding together to do something that moms had always done, which is to look out for their kids on on a day like today. It's good for any of us to evaluate and to ask whether it's a clinical question or a spiritual question, where is your worth? I hope it's not in the kids that you have or don't have, because for those who are sitting here, oh, my kids are precious, and I'm going to post about it on Instagram every single day for their whole lives because I've got motherhood on lockdown, and they are awesome. Just wait, because there's going to be one day where they're not, and if that's where your worth is, We'll, we'll stand close to help pick up the pieces. Our worth is not in what we have. It's not in what we're named. It's not in our personality or our achievement or anything about who we are and our place in any sort of family. Abraham's worth was not in what he had done or what he would do. Abraham's worth was in what God gave to him. Scripture teaches that Abraham was credited, reckoned as righteous before he cut his own flesh and before he bound his own son. That the chronology matters. Genesis chapter 15, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Then came Genesis chapter 17. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be a sign of the covenant. Then came Genesis chapter 22. If you're tracking along with the story, you know that the the one son that they were able to have, he and Sarah together, God called him to take that son to the mountain and to sacrifice him. In Genesis chapter 22, it says he bound. It's the akida in scripture, this picture of binding up something that God had promised to you and dedicating it back to the Lord. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on top of the altar on top of the wood. Spoiler alert, he didn't have to kill his son. If you haven't heard that story before, don't like stress out. Did he do it? Did he not do it? Didn't happen. But the chronology of Paul's words matter. Paul's saying the order of operations counts. That Abraham believed God before he followed God, that Abraham believed God before he obeyed God, that Abraham had faith credited to him by God before he performed an act of fidelity. God, you and you only before God and before he was willing to forfeit or sacrifice everything to God. Chronology proves the point, and it means that this is the thing. Thank you, Siri. That this is the thing that we have to all know about salvation. 
Like this is the thing that regardless of what we agree on about every other point of contention that we might have with the interpretations that some people have made with this word, this is what we have to know about salvation. It says in verse 16, therefore the promise comes by faith. We could stop there and pray together. The promise comes by faith, but it continues so that it may be grace and maybe guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law. I'm thankful that Paul didn't say circumcision again right here, but that's what he meant. But also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. As it is written, Genesis chapter 17, I have made you the father of many nations, not just one nation, but all nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not against all hope. This is my favorite part. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said about him. So shall your offspring be as numerous on the sand on the seashore without weakening in his faith he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead i think that's just about the most crass way that the apostle paul could have said that abraham tell me you're old without telling me that you're old his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that sarah's womb was also dead yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Some of you are facing hard, cold facts. The, the finance of your life, the history of your life, the biology of your life, there's a diagnosis and a prognosis, there's a burden or a limit that's just not going anywhere, there's a pattern that has continued to play it out in your relationships over and over and over again, and you're forced to sit down every day and say, I've got to face facts. It's okay to face facts and to move in whatever is the logical direction, but my encouragement to you is that while you're going, keep your ears open and let hope have the final say. It's okay to hear the diagnosis. It's okay to follow the treatment plan. It's okay to get down on your knees every day and pray that the opposite would be true about your life. It's okay to look at the reality of your age and your stage and your financial situation. Like, it's okay to look at the cold, hard facts, but faith means that you will still, against all those facts, let hope have the last word. We can't say this today because we're not in chapter five yet, but spoiler alert, we're going to get to chapter five, and there's this whole picture of hard stuff being good stuff because perseverance in our lives builds character, and character builds hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. We are thousands and thousands of years in this moment past the Abraham story, who in hope, although he had no history to believe in, no story to read, no other relationships to lean on, he still mustered hope, born out of faith that he gave over to God, regardless he was going to trust. And us, 
We've got the rest of the story. It's written down for us to read it. We've got the community of relationships all around us for people who can prove it, that the facts were stacked up against them and yet the God of hope intervened, that the facts looked like nothing was gonna go good, but the God of hope provided. We've got all of the history and all of the story and all of the proof. So why wouldn't we put our faith in God? thousands of years of the benefit of scripture and history so abraham verse 21 being fully persuaded that god had the power to do what he had promised i'm as good as dead her womb is really dead too like it doesn't matter i can face facts and still have hope that regardless of the facts, God is powerful to do what he promised he would do. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, Paul's not leaving any room for misinterpretation. He's explaining every single word. Those words, it was credited to him, were not just written about him, not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. The disciples were invited to face the facts. They saw him bleed. They saw him die. It was confirmed. They saw the stone rolled in front of the grave. He was gone. And yet, the God of hope raised Christ from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. We have to know that it's all about Jesus for our salvation. This, then, is how we show our salvation, by being a people who do not waver through unbelief. We can face facts, but still believe in the promises of God. We show our faith through unwavering trust and hope in the promises so that we can be a no matter what kind of people. No matter what happens, no matter what's hard, no matter what I face, no matter how long it lasts, no matter how long I lack, I will be a person of faith in what scripture tells us if you look at it on the whole and what's so clear in the book of Romans that our value is not in us. It's not in our flesh. It's not in the part of the covenant where we did the cutting. It's not in a part of the promise where we did the binding, where we did the obeying. Our value is not in us. It's not that you're pretty. It's not that you're witty. It's not that you're smart. And it's not that you're going to succeed in life. Your value isn't in us. It's granted to us by faith. The reformers knew this, and they wrote down these five solas in Latin. And the best one to me is sola fide, by faith and faith alone. That's how we're saved. That's how we're, we're reckoned. That word credit, that word reckoned is lagizomai, and it means to reckon, to count, to compute, to calculate, to count over, to take into account. It's reckoned to something as an availing equivalent for something. If you just look it up online and you're like, what does, because when I was growing up, the word reckon was just something that your mom said to the answer of a question. Like, hey mom, is it going to rain tomorrow? I reckon. 
Like that's, people just said reckon in a whole different context. They didn't know that it was a real word. I just thought it was Southern slang for something else. It, it actually has a meaning. It means to be considered or regarded in a specific way. To be established by accounting or a calculation. What counts you worthy before God is not the work that you do, it's not the act that you perform, it's not the sacrifice that you make, it's not the family that you come from or the family that you have. It's reckoned to you, it's applied to you, it's credited to you, not because of what you do, but because of what Christ has done. And it only comes through faith. Would you pray with me today? Jesus, we are grateful for, oh, such a good reminder. That we get to be the, the spared people in the room. That because of your shed blood and because of your cruel death, we get to be chosen, we get to be saved, we get to be spared, we get to be worth it. So God, our prayer today is that we would be a people of hope. That we would be a people of faith that we would be a people who are reminded and do the work of reminding others that our worth isn't in anything about us. Our worth is what's been granted to us, and it only comes through faith in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray today. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Share this episode with friends and family in your life. Make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you are interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.